All right, folks, if you've made it this far, it's Morgan of Murph & Morgan. You know that this will be our final Patreon episode for the month of December because we took December off to retool, rejuvenate, work on some things. But in the meantime, we wanted to leave you guys with some of the content we've done on Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. And our final one we're going to do for you guys, it's our case of the month. Murph and I go back in time. We look at cases, most of the time cases we've done. Uh, and we look at cases that uh, maybe some other people have done. And what we do is we go into, these are cases you probably have, a couple of them you've heard about, especially the ones Murph was on. But some of these are ones you've never heard about. But we dive into the details behind it. We tell you the stories of some of the cases and the things that we've worked on and how it affected us and what we did. So I always enjoy Case of the Month because it really gets into more of a deep dive how investigations are done, what kind of things have to be done to clear a case. Right. And as you'll hear, if you haven't listened to our, our other three Patreon episodes in, in the month of December, is we get a little more opinionated. Whereas when we're doing our regular interviews, we want the story from the guest. You know, We don't want you to hear the story from us. We want you to hear the from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So uh, you may not agree with all our opinions, but hey, if you don't, let us know. And if you do, let us know. Let us know what you think about Patreon. And we ask you, if you enjoyed this, sign up for Patreon for 2023. We're going to have a lot more good content. Don't wait till 2023. Sign up now. If you're listening to this now, you've had the entire month of December with free content. So, folks, sign up now. How to sign up now? Here's how to order. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Once more, that's Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. I tried to find out what the 800 number, if you dialed 800-Game of Crimes, what that would come up with. I don't know. I, I didn't. I didn't want to dial it. So don't. But if you do dial it, folks, let us know what it is. Right? <laughs> yeah. And for regular episodes of Game of Crimes, we start up again on January second, twenty twenty three. So come back. We've got some fantastic guests. We've already got their interviews done. They're ready to go. They've been edited. We're gonna knock your socks off this year. And the first one we're starting off with is one that made the national headlines, the national news, and we've got the officer that was smack dab in the middle of it with the real story of what happened. So if you want to know what that is, tune in on January 2nd, 2023. But in the meantime, share with your friends, tell everybody about patreon.com slash game of crimes. And thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the final version for 2022 Game of Crimes. Welcome, dudes and dudettes, players and playerettes, and everybody in between, amigas, amigos. Welcome to the June 2022 in the year of our Lord, Kyrie, Domine, Danes, Requiem. This is Case of the Month, and as always, we try and find something we have a personal relationship to, but uh, this one definitely is, because this comes from where I used to work as a state trooper and a detective, and uh, this is going to be a hell of a case. Murph's already looking at it, right, Murph? So this yes, guy sir. was not a fine, upstanding member of society. And by the way, hi, y'all. Yeah. Howdy. That's how you say it in the South. Hi, so, y'all. Hi, y'all. And there's y'all and all y'all, as we've determined, right? No, it's just y'all. Y'all, that's all inclusive. That's all. Well, how can you do singular then? It's the same thing. Y'all is one, it's three, it's 5,000. Yeah, I, we I make know. it easy. We don't try to complicate things down here. <laughs> hey, but but before we do get started, we want to say thank you, uh, all of you folks listening in, because that means you're a player. That means you have decided to up your game and become a member of Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's us. That's where you find us. So we want to say thank you for being Patreon menu, menu, member, <laughs> for being a menu. <laughs> I'll take the number four. He's going to cannibalize you guys. <laughs>
No, we'll have to do one on cannibalism. No, no. God, I don't know any cases like that. But uh, anyway, we just want to say thank you guys as always. Uh, you're what makes this fun. Uh, we get a lot of comments from you folks when we put mm-hmm. stuff out. And this one... Um, this one is a this one is a bad case. I mean, because this is a bad dude, and here's the bad thing about it. I know everybody involved in this case, at least from the Garden City side. I knew the killer. I knew the killer's father. I knew the clerks. Um, I knew all the cops. Uh, so this this one's kind of personal for me. But this guy, if there's anybody who deserves uh, old Sparky, it's this guy. Sounds to me like you're part of a conspiracy here. You know all these people. Maybe uh, we should be looking at you in the lineup. Well, to be part of a conspiracy, you have to take an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy with two or more people, one who is not a law enforcement agent. Well, I think you just admitted. You admitted no, I just described your, what a conspiracy was, you, and I said no, I'm not you in admitted it. your complicity and the knowledge of these people and what they've done. And how would you have that in front of that in Hello, if anybody's listening, I withdrew from the conspiracy years ago. So. <laughs> Hey, I just want to say, too, to all our listeners, thank you very much for, for coming on here because this is the only reason we do this is because of the comments we get back from you. We enjoy doing it. We hope you're enjoying what you're hearing here. It seems like you do because you keep coming back. But uh, don't hesitate to give you, give us your comments and let us know your thoughts because we actually do take that very serious. We don't take much serious. We certainly don't take ourselves serious, but we do take serious what you say. So, But we do you. take this serious, absolutely. And um, this is a serious case. I mean, make no doubt about it. We might have a little fun, but... Uh, this this is uh, th- this was a tough one. And let me kind of set the stage too. So this is in July of 1989, and as with Kansas, Southwest Kansas, things are kind of hot. You know, it's not exactly the Garden State like New Jersey, New Jersey. Um, the wind blows. It's it's still a little warm. Uh, you know, during the evening, and so. And here's the other thing too. Not only do I know all of these folks, I knew the clerks, not knew them well, but knew of them because when you work midnights or you work late shifts and stuff, you go in. Stopping in a convenience store, getting a uh, something to drink, you know, grabbing a quick snack or whatever—that's something you always do. So this is something you would run across um, both of these folks, you know, on a previous time. But this all, this really, what this got started was uh, on July 29th. I'm sorry, July 19th at about 1:10 in the morning. Um, the law enforcement center, the police department, gets a call from a guy that says, "Hey, I was just in uh, the Dart Inn." And uh, it's called a place called the Dart Inn, and um, uh, you know it's third in Kansas. Uh, it, the exact addresses won't mean much to you folks, but they will in relation to what we talk about later. But so it, it's about one o'clock in the morning, uh, or just a little after midnight, I should say. And somebody gets they call in, they say, "Hey, um, I was just there. There's nobody there." So they send an officer there, and what do they find? There's nobody there. Uh, I believe the grocery or the the cash register was open. Um, it looks like probably money was missing, but they search the store, they look for stuff, and they don't find anything. So, you know, obviously this sets this sets off red flags because you've got somebody missing. Now, one of the one of the things you have to account for, you have to think about is one of the first things you do is there's a lot of ways you can go with this, but when you do an investigation, the other thing you start with the circle is when we talked about the John Bonet case. You look at that circle, you eliminate everybody that's within that inner circle, and then you work your way out. Uh, it's concentric rings of connectivity. And so one of the first things you want to do is, where's the husband? You know, is mm-hmm. she married? Um, where is the, well, you know, where's the significant other? And this first person, her name was Barbara Kokendorfer, 27 years old. They weren't sure how much money was taken because they didn't have a count at that time, but they knew money was taken. And so the first thing you got to do is got to try and track down her husband. 
uh, who worked at a beef packing plant. And so they had to, he would work the late shift. So she walked to work because they only had one car between them, as is with young couples a lot of times. So that's one of their key things. The other thing you have to say, was she kidnapped? You know, was there something that happened? Right. So they're working that scene. And let me tell you, the one thing I used to kid about, especially when I supervised some of these guys later, you would have people that would just write, they would take 10 pages to write something you could write in two paragraphs. Yeah. <laughs> you ever have one of those guys, Murph? Oh, yeah. Uh, and I've been accused of that myself sometimes. I do I do get a little wordy. Yeah, I have to go back and reread. But, you know, but sometimes, but the thing is, too, is the one thing, though, that's nice is you have to be careful. And this is a pro tip to you folks that are in law enforcement or go out to law enforcement. You don't want to say too little and leave out details, which then a defense attorney at some point can exploit. But at the same time, if you put in way too much detail, they actually exploit that as well because you make one little mistake, then they call into error, call into question any other of the other things. Was well, this an error? Well, you made a mistake here. What about this? So it's one of those things. It's uh, It has to be long enough to cover what you need to do, but it has to be short enough that it doesn't expose yourself to additional stuff. So right. g- people were pretty good. They say, this is how I approached the scene. This is what I did. And of course, they put in there, like with this, one of the key things you do when you have a body missing, the first thing you do, you check the inside of the store, make sure nobody's there, You know, wasn't taken in the back, which has happened with uh, convenience store robberies. But once that's done, you back out, you don't touch anything, and then you secure that crime scene because there's nothing else you can do at that point. You're waiting for the investigators to show up. Uh, the detectives. So you you go you back out and you secure this crime scene. So they secured this crime scene. And so they're working this and obviously they're looking at making notifications. And then guess what, Murph? What? About an hour later, another. get another call. Yeah. Another call, uh nine one one call, and they said, Hey, um, I'm over here at the Coastal Mart, which is at eleven fifteen West Campbell for you folks in Southwest Kansas Garden City, you know where that is. Just walked in, and the clerk is missing here, too. Well, now you had red flags before. Now this one is like, okay. Oh, the alarm bells are going off now. Well, and it's the other thing, too, it starts helping you narrow down um, your who your potential suspects might be. Because even though you start off in those concentric rings, the minute you have two unrelated, but related in a sense, but two women who are not related to each other, no apparent pattern, but they disappear, and they're both from convenience stores, then you start going, okay. We may not be dealing with a family member. We may be dealing with uh, an acquaintance or somebody who's unknown, an unsub. So you have now you have to start thinking differently. So this one, um, they got the call at uh, 3.45 in the morning. Well, on one of these, they know what time it was on the first one, Barbara Kokendorfer, because an officer had just cleared that location at 10 minutes after midnight after taking a shoplifting report. So... He, in a sense, he may have been one of the last people to see her alive. And so at 120 is when the call came in. Now at 220, um, there was somebody that, well, actually the call came in at 345 for the next one. So um, they had just taken a shoplifting report. I'm sorry, on this one, they'd just taken a shoplifting report, f- finished about 220. Now, the bad, the thing that kind of made this worse is that this one was Mary Range. She was the sister-in-law of another Garden City police officer. Oh, yeah. yeah so for, that's, that's, for us, that's family. Yeah, that's family. So now, um, so what they got is that uh, uh, they got a call uh, from somebody that said, hey, I was just in there a little bit ago. There's nobody there. He, I don't know why he walked to where he did. It wasn't a, it wasn't like he just went around the corner and used a pay phone. But so then you start wondering, hey, you know, is this guy involved? Why does he wait? So 
everybody's a, basically it's not that everybody's a suspect, but you you need to start eliminating people from suspicion. Uh, right. And anybody who's got a connection to the case, you got to start drilling it down. So, well, you know, think about this more. You said that uh, a police officer had just been there just a short time earlier, taking a shoplifting yep. a complaint. I mean, there's a suspect right there because is somebody getting back for retaliation because you called the cops on them? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, who are you to snitch on me, man? I'm going to come back and get you. And maybe did I did I do the same thing at another store? So the thing, so the thing you start thinking about is exactly that. It, Murph, you start thinking, well, that shoplifter. Do we have a description? Do they match the shoplifter? Was it some? Do they match the description of somebody who may have been in the other store? So we start looking at all of these different things. And I'm, I'm actually, I was uh, telling Murph right before we got on here. Trying to pull some details out, but it is 766 pages in this PDF file. It's so big, it takes a while. Even on my big, uh, awesome Mac, it takes a while. I'm wondering why you didn't read the whole damn thing before we got on here. What's wrong? I did. Well, I, did. I read a lot of it. What I was trying to do is pull up some of the. Uh, because there's some actually certain things now that we talk about now that become very important later in terms of who is the suspect, what were they driving? Because now we start looking for, okay. Do we have a description of somebody? Do we start getting some preliminary descriptions? Do we have a vehicle description? So um, they start getting all of these uh, different things that are coming in. And let me tell you, now that you've got two women missing, you've got a command post set up. Uh, the KBI, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, has been called in. The Kansas Highway Patrol, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, my fellers at that time, got called in because they uh, they have aircraft and they need extra bodies because we know we're going to have to start searching some things now. Well. They start doing those things, and then Steve, uh, you know, all of this stuff is in motion, and then um, well, you, you know, and here's a, here's one thing that that makes that important as well to get the uh, KHP guys on board. There is because you've got a killer on the loose. the The troopers are primarily running the the interstates and the main highways, and if this guy, you know, if he happens to get in a hurry and takes off speeding, one of the most dangerous things you can do is pull a car over because you don't know what you're getting into most times. And he could just walk up there innocently, pulling somebody over for going 10 miles over the speed limit, and this guy pops him with a 25 caliber, just like he did these others. So that's that's the significance of getting the word out to all the police officers, just to beware. There's there's a, a murder in, amongst our myths somewhere. There is. And that's the other thing, too, is that uh, – and you want, you want to start putting it out to the other areas because you want people to know is that, hey, um, we've just had this happen here. So they do send out a teletype, and they send it out uh, – pretty much statewide. And they basically say, Hey, look, if you've had these things we've had, uh, and I'll, t- well, actually I'll tell you about that later. Cause that comes a little bit later. But the one interesting thing that happens though, Murph, during this time, they get a call from down in Oklahoma that says, Hey, we just arrested two juveniles, uh, in a stolen vehicle that was reported out of your jurisdiction, a stolen truck. And this location in Oklahoma is only an hour and a half from garden city. So you're mm-hmm. going, well, wow. Could be, could be. Could be, you know, I mean, so now guess what? You have to spin up another set of resources. You work with them to find out what that is. So this starts, everything basically starts at about one twenty in the morning. Well, at 9.20 in the morning, 9.21, a gentleman is out driving down the road on a road they call Tennis Road. So <laughs> we had some funny names for roads. We had like five-mile road, six-mile road, because mm-hmm. they were five miles north of town, six miles north of town, nine-mile road. <laughs> well, Tennis Road was about 13 miles north of the city limits of Garden City, about 13 miles north of where um, both of these uh, convenience stores were located. And so he's driving down the road, and he uh, tell, he calls the LEC, says, hey, we need a deputy out here. He says he thought there was a dead woman. He'd observed the body for a few seconds and could not detect any breathing. He said the body was located on Tennis Road 
one half of a mile east of Jenny Barker Road. So Jenny Barker Road, US 83, by the way, US 83 is the only north-south unbroken highway in the United States. It's the only one that connects uh, from uh, Mexico all the way up to Canada. So US 83 is the main one that runs through Garden City. By the way, uh, Steve, if you remember out here, remember uh, 50 Highway out here? Yeah, well, 50 Highway is runs through Garden City too. So it's 50 Highway actually goes, wow. it becomes 400, but it's 50 Highway out in Garden. So if you got on 50, you stayed on that. Steve, you could be out in Garden City, Kansas with me. I wonder if this is as big a pain in the ass out in Garden City as it was in Northern Virginia. <laughs> well, not as much traffic, but you know what we had out there too that a lot Virginia doesn't have on there? Cattle trucks. Tons oh, yeah. and tons of cattle trucks with cattle that crap and mm. piss and do all sorts of stuff. But anyway, taking mm. that kind of takes away. But anyway, so US 83, so Jenny Barker Road is three miles east of US 83. So if you're on Tennis Road, you go north of Garden City, 13 miles, go east on Tennis Road, uh, three miles, about three and a half miles east. And then that's uh, Jenny Barker is three miles east. Jenny Barker is a north-south road. And then the body was found a half mile east at 920. Well, they get up there, and um, that is what they call the first crime scene now. So the first crime scene um, is actually Mary Rains. And when they look there, it's very clear she's got a bullet to the back of her head is what it looks like. And they've got shell casings. She's laying face down. So this becomes important, too, because you start looking at how does this person commit their executions. And so the first one is face down, bullet to the back of the head. So now, and I think I read that on her, she was completely nude. No, that's going to be the second one. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, cause that actually gets back into something about why you did, why they did what they did. Um, so, uh, the first one is, um, uh, Mary Rains is the first one found there at 920 in the morning. So at this point now, you've got an idea. You go, okay, we need to search Jenny Barker. We need to search Tennis Road. We need to start getting people out there. And that's when the, the more highway patrol people are called in. I know far away is Dodge City. So an hour away, they're pulling in troops from all over the place, additional sheriff's officers. And so as they're doing this at uh, about uh, just a couple minutes after 12, and it's actually when I got on the state patrol, my training officer was Wes Wheeler, K382. Mm-hmm. So Wes is driving down Tennis Road, and he discovers the second body. And... Uh, that is uh, Barbara, Co- or that's uh, Barbara, Co- Barbara Corken- Kokendorfer. I'm sorry, Barbara Kokendorfer, and she's the one found nude, but laying face down in the ditch, bullet hole, basically what appears to be a wound to the back of the head as well. And they eventually find shell casings. Is that yep, right? Yep, they do, and they they they, they determine that they're 25 caliber shell casings, which now you start looking at matches the shell casings from the first one, and what does that start telling you about the killer? Um, they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. Cause most of them will police up their brass, you know, because it makes it harder to conduct the investigation. It's just things that tie incidents together. Yeah. So, um, so they're out there searching and searching and obviously now they find this. So now they spin up a whole nother part of the investigation and now there's a lot more things going on. Well, what is interesting about that too is in one of the reports, and I'm going to see if this thing doesn't lock up on me here. Let's <laughs> hope the, not. uh, the um, I'll pull it up here. But anyway, um, I started going through this, and there's some things early on that you say, okay, do we have something here now that ties back in uh, you know, to the scene later? And we do. And so one of the reports they got um, is actually Wes Wheeler. Again, my uh, former training officer, but K382 is my shift partner sometimes. 
they're start they're stopping uh, people, they're talking to people, and as they do these, uh, basically, it's kind of, it's not a roadblock, but it's you bring people in, you say, hey, were you in this area, whatever? This guy says, yeah, I was driving up the road up Highway 83, and I see this tan Plymouth Volari lights out parked on the road facing east. And so they get this information, and a lot of people say, well, how does he know it's a tan Plymouth Volari? Well, the guy who saw it works for an automobile parts dealer. This guy deals in automobiles day in and day out. He knows vehicles inside and out. Not unusual. Not unusual. So they start getting that information. So now, uh, I will tell you, and obviously the news starts getting hold of this, so now we've got um, a clerk kidnapped from the Dart Inn. We've got a clerk kidnapped from the uh, Coastal Mart. You start thinking, okay, the other thing you have to account for, you start accounting for at that time is, um, you know, all the other convenience stores, is everybody okay? So there's a massive effort to check, make sure. They start getting reports in from other counties uh, and other places saying, hey, we've got this report of suspicious activity. We've got um, we've got some things here that you guys might be interested in. So they start running down a bunch of leads. I mean, and really, it's and the bad part about it, Steve, I, I hate to say the bad part because you want leads to come in. But here's but one of the major considerations you have when stuff like this comes in is you've got to you've got to make priorities in terms of what is it we follow up first? What do we do? Obviously, notification of family, finding out their whereabouts, because the other thing you want to do is um, trace their movements. Can you account for your movements? Where were you? Where have you been? They've got to they've got to locate other family. You start developing some initial suspects. You think, and I always hated that word. Is that you know how do you know they're a suspect? Because right. The danger is, is that the minute you start labeling somebody a suspect right away before you have enough information, like if you've got DNA and you've got fingerprints, okay, now we can elevate them. And I don't like this person of interest too, but you've got people again, you know, have we included them or excluded them from the list of of people who may be involved in this crime? I just, I I don't always hate to say, well, let's, you know, he's a possible suspect. Well, every, you know, half the town is a possible suspect. Absolutely. Everybody that was awake during that time is a possible suspect. And it's, you know, and when you're dealing with family members of a murdered victim, I mean, it takes true finesse and professionalism to deal with them, to talk to them, because they're, most of them are innocent, you know, and, and they've just gone through this traumatic event where they've lost a family member, not just passed away, but to a very violent crime. Uh, it takes, you know, you just don't walk in and say, come on, we're going to go talk. You know, you've got to show a lot of compassion and uh, it's it's an art that you develop through experience, to be quite honest with you. And having had to make those notifications and talk, in fact, one of the uh, cases we did, the case of Juan Ayon, the gentleman who was run over eight times with his own car by the gangbangers and stuff, having to go talk to those family members, you know, and it's one of those, it's a tough thing it's not like in the movies, <laughs> as you know, Murph, uh, with Narcos, it's like it, Hollywood likes to do things their way. But in yeah. real life, it's like, you know, I used to approach them and say, look, this is going to be a tough conversation. I know it's going to hurt you, but this is how it's going to help us find out what happened. I need some information from you, and the reason I need it now is it's very time-sensitive. You don't come back and say, well, we'll come back and talk to you in a couple of days. What if they've got the key piece of information that allows you to find the suspect? So there is a sense of urgency, and I would always say, look, this is going to be a tough conversation. You may resent me for it, but understand I'm doing this because we're committed to finding out not only what happened, but who did this. And right. this is why I need your help right now. And most of the time when you would explain it to them and just, you don't want to be forceful, but you have to be in a sense persistent and say, we have to get this information right now. I'm not going to ask you a ton of stuff, but there's three key things I need to know. Is that okay with you? 
I need, and you know, one of the things I would do too, Steve, it's a, it wasn't like you say, it's an art. It's always hard to turn down. If I say, Hey Murph, come over here and mow my yard for me and, and water my grass and do this. You're going to go, Hey, up yours, pal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if I say, Hey Murph, I need your help. And you go, what is it? You say, Hey, look, I hurt my knee. I hurt my back. Uh, I can't do anything. Could you possibly help me out? You getting to the same outcome. But if I just ordered you to do it, say, hey, just come over and do this, you're going to go, yeah, whatever, right? Up yours. <laughs> well, you say that most of the time anyway. <laughs> and I'm not asking you to mow my yard. Um, well, not, you know, but I'm saying it with love, you know that, right? <laughs> love. But, but that's what I'm saying. But the, the, the way you do it is you say, look, I need your help. And that, that, that sets the context. So I would tell the family members, look, I need your help. And when, in the case of Juan Aon, he was missing. We didn't even know where he was. And so we're talking to the family. I need your help. Do you know who we went out to meet with? Did you know who you talked to? And some of the key things they told us were very important in the case later. So in this one, they're going to have to go talk to them and find out what's going on. Well, they're talking to them. You know, they're finding out family members. And then um, this thing is, uh, as you can imagine, like I said, I was just going through a lot of the report. And let me tell you, Steve, I mean, there are so many things I'm looking at, uh, at a, after about well, especially after the, the second body is found, but after the first body is found and the number of people, then the number of people they add at the second body. I was trying to count up. At one time, there was probably 40 to 45 people between communications, the sheriff's office, the police department, the KBI, um, uh, the highway patrol, probably at least 40 to 45 people actively working these things. And we're talking about a county that's only 35,000, um, maybe 60 people on the police department at that time, 30 people on the sheriff's office in terms of sworn or out on the road. So, I mean, you, you really need all the help you can get. So we always had, we had to work together because we had no other choice. The KBI needed our help because they might only have two or three agents that they could send anywhere because they're spread out along among the state. Right. So, you know, it's one of those things. It's all hands on deck, you know? Um, yep. Kind of like when Kevin got shot, you know, I, I mean, I, I probably, you probably had offers from other Fed agencies, you know, people said, hey, what do you need? Can we help you? Especially ATF guys. I think ATF guys are really. Um, everybody, everybody stepped in, everybody threw in, you know, not just the Feds, but the Miami-Dade, Miami PD, I mean, uh, Metro-Dade, I'm sorry, and then Miami PD. Other, every agency in, in Southern Florida was ready and anxious to get involved. Yeah. So that was the case here. So we're looking for a bunch of people, and uh, I was going to pull up something here real quick, too. Uh, I'll get it here. Finally, this thing is loading. I had some pages lined out um, to do this, but but one of the other key things, though, they get to is they also start getting descriptions of somebody that they've seen. Now, they bring in one of our folks who was doing composites at that time. They do a couple composites. These people were later not related to this case. They find clothing in some areas, like out on the highway, not related to the case. But you're going to all these places because once something happens, something that was unimportant, now people are going, hey, I don't know if this is important or not. But And let me tell you, Steve, I would rather have somebody do that and have us go out there and, and take a look at it than have them not report it at all and have it be a key piece of the case. Mm-hmm. But one of the things was somebody saw and said, hey, just a couple miles north of town on 83, I saw some clothing in the ditch. Will you go out there? It's a, it was a child's striped shirt or whatever, not, not related to this at all. But you had to go out there. You had to send a couple people to document things. And doesn't it always make you wonder, how did, that sh- how did a kid lose a shirt? <laughs> how do people – you see two, two sneakers out on the highway. How did these sneakers get here? They just, they're just there. Magic and, sneakers, I will tell like you. It's like that everywhere. You know, it's just, you always wonder, how in the world did that get there? And I will tell you, what's interesting is going through this case file when you do stuff, um, because it's a homicide, 
I think sometimes they they say, well, let's let's err on the side of caution. We'll just collect everything. We'll keep everything. So, I mean, I've got everything in here too. If I show this to you, it's handwritten notes. It's they've got the you know the, the legal pads like what I made my notes on mm-hmm. here. Everything mm-hmm. is in there. They've got. By the way, I'm pretty proud. They made captains write reports. Normally, captains delegate stuff. Well, hey, look, you show up, pal. It's like what I used to do with my crime scenes. Yeah. There's the perimeter. You step inside the perimeter, you're going on the crime scene log, and you're writing a report. Yeah. Simple as that. Yeah. Why do you need to be in there? What What's the, what's the benefit that you're going to provide to this investigation by just walking in and looking at a dead body or a crime scene? Yeah. Just because, you know, I hate to say it too, but there are some cops too. They're, they're tourists. They go, oh, you know, they're voyeurs. Oh, yeah. They want to see what's going on. You know what? And I, and I have to say, as a young cop, I was too. You wanted, you didn't want to miss a thing. Uh, and, but you know what? That's why you have the senior officers there that just jerk your ass right back and say, boy, <laughs> here's why you're not going to go in there. You could just wait. Hey, Skippy. Now, I will tell you, one of the other things I was pretty um, – uh, um, Pretty impressed, made sure that, you know, they're covering all the bases. And we did this, uh, kind of talked about it on the John Bonet case, is the importance of knowing what the temperatures were, because that factors into everything of decomposition of body. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what were the ambient, uh, what's the ambient air? Because that, depending on when you find the body, you start getting an idea, okay, when were they placed there? So they did go through. And I, th- I, thought, it, I thought it was a little hotter, but uh, now I've got the official report. So at midnight on July 19th, it was 63 degrees. It dipped down to 59 degrees by 6 o'clock, which is unusual for July in Kansas. Good Lord, that's like up in Canada. Yeah, Canada. Ooh, Canada. And then it got up to 85 degrees by 4 o'clock. So um, we actually had the Kansas State University Experiment Station out there because of agriculture and everything. I mean, we've got precise weather readings. So Mm -hmm. it was good that they took those precise weather readings. We knew what was going on. So the reason we're kind of laying this all out is that now, one of the things you start doing is you start sharing this information. You start getting it out. So one of the teletypes that was sent out before they had found the bodies, they'd sent it out to Kansas and the surrounding areas, which this becomes important later on the teletype. So they send the teletype out. And in fact, I'm going to pull that up here real quick. I think I can read it to you. Um, yeah. So here's the teletype that went out. Um, and it went out before they had found the first body. But of course, we're wanting to get this out far and wide. So they go... In the early morning hours of July 19th, 1989, two convenience stores were robbed and the clerks abducted. The clerks were taken to an isolated area and murdered. Victim number one, a 27-year-old white female, was found nude. Victim number two, a 28-year-old white female, was found in the same general area and was missing her shoes and socks. Both deaths appear to be execution-style killings utilizing a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol. Any agency investigating similar crimes is requested to contact the Garden City Police Department or Kansas Bureau of Investigation. So why is that important? Because uh, yeah, um, if you got a serial murder. In this case, uh, we will talk about again, like we did in a couple other things. We'll talk about the different types of killers, as we did in um, Mark Comboy's episode. By the way, if you guys are listening now, Steve, what I finally had to do is I just had to delete those other episodes and just start all over again. And now it's successfully uploaded the way it should be. But and that's on Apple only, right? That was the Apple only was the pr- only problem. Fuck yeah. Apple. I, I like them, but by God, you bastards. <laughs> um, anyway, but look, it only happened one time in the last 50, it were, you know, probably 100 plus episodes we've uploaded. So um, not too bad. But uh, the reason I say that is in Mark Conboy's case, they were spree killers. They were not serial killers because there wasn't a cooling off period, you know, following the FBI definition. And it wasn't mass killing. Uh, all the killings happened in one place within basically the same time. So these things are happening. So the reason that's important is because then on um, July 20th, in Pampa, Texas, mm-hmm. 
um, they have a homicide down there, a, uh, a gen, uh, an older gentleman, uh, 62 years old, working at a one-hour hour photo. Uh, this happened at 1 or 2.30 in the afternoon. He is found face down in one-hour photo, shot, guess what, in the back of the head one time laying face down. And guess what they find at the scene, Steve? 25 caliber casings. 25 caliber casing. And real quickly, as we're doing this in real time, I was going to get this earlier, but let's let's do this. Uh, Garden City, Kansas, and let's find out. Take a guess. How long of a how far is it? Do you think to Pampa, Texas? It's 177 miles. It takes two hours and 52 minutes. I'm looking at it on my computer. <laughs> I just too. pulled it up to yes, two hours and 52 <laughs> minutes. And Steve, guess what? It's on. What highway is it on? 83. 83 Highway. So what do we have in common? There's a lot of things tied to 83 right now. So uh, ties down to 83. Now, however, that's not the only place something happens. Pampa, Texas is where they have that. But then now, on um, following up from that, while they're down in Pampa, Texas, one of the people from the police department and the KBI, they get notification from Ardmore, Oklahoma. Three females were shot at a flower shop. Guess what? All lying on the floor all face down, all shot in the back of the head, all 25 calibers. That's, that's horrible. That's just horrible. But you know what he is? He's a, uh, I'm sorry, but you know, this, is, this is somebody you start going, okay, are they, why are they killing? Yeah, good question. I, and I've, I've already read ahead. I know what his dad attributes it to, but. Yeah. Well, so the the only the only the only thing is so Ardmore, Oklahoma. If you guys are uh, keeping score here, it's south of Oklahoma City and um, uh, south and east of Pampa, Texas. But if you go on what's called two eighty three, or basically, I'm sorry, uh, I forty. So you hit Pampa and you can hit uh, part of takes you into Interstate forty to Oklahoma City and then down to Ardmore. So uh, you go to Pampa. Looks like he left Pampa, went down then to Ardmore and uh, killed the other folks. So. Now what we have now is we've got five people killed in three different locations across three different states. Over what time frame? How many days, dude? Uh, within within thirty six hours. Jeez. I mean, he's the the killings start in Garden City, uh, basically right after midnight on uh, July nineteenth. You've got the shootings and stuff in Ardmore and in uh, Pampa, Texas on the 20th. So I'd say, you know, within, I'd say 36 hours is when at least these initial five killings had happened. And and not to jump, jump too far ahead here, but do we have a suspected motive? No, not at this point. I mean, at this, at this point, yeah, we, we got, we got, we get some ideas later, but at this point, no, nobody knows what's going on. I mean, obviously if it's robbery, uh, it's money, right? So the first thing you start thinking, okay, why would somebody want to rob a convenience store and why would they take money? Most people at that point feeding a drug habit. Mm-hmm. And, and you're not going to get massive amounts of money. It's not like you're robbing a bank here. You're going to get, you know, if you're lucky, you can get a couple hundred bucks. Well, now what is interesting is uh, the tan Plymouth Volari pops up again in the description of vehicle seen at the scene and the description of the person about 5'8, you know, 5'10, blonde hair, streaks of gold or streaks and then gold rim glasses. Matches a description they got early on in the investigation, too, of a suspicious person that was seen. So now we start tying all these things together. But they don't have uh, any information on this. In fact, they make they end up arresting the wrong person to begin with, a guy named Michael Green, because through a variety of things, right, that they say, hey, look, um, he was missing, a car was missing. Uh, one day people say things. It's like, 
He was uh, he was arrested for uh, killing a lady named Gwen Miller on July 23rd. He was suspected of Kokendorfer and Reigns, and he'd been identified by a photo lineup from one of the survivors of the Ardmore shooting. But within hours of his arrest, this right. is when this happens. Greg Braun is arrested in Mexico for the murder, uh, you know, another murder that he commits. Right. So he was exonerated. And you know what? That's just as important as finding the real murderer is ruling out those who are not responsible. Even though this guy is a murderer in his own right on a different case, I mean, that's our job. That's what you do as investigators is you want to identify the correct person. You don't want to charge somebody with a crime that they didn't commit. Uh, I do want to clarify something. I, I talked about the three people shot in Ardmore. Actually, only one died. The other two survived. Um, okay. uh, sorry, I misstated that. Yeah, they, they survived. But again, all, all were shot with a twenty five caliber pistol. But now, two days later, in Springer, New Mexico, is when a lady named Geraldine Valdez, a convenience store, guess what? Another convenience store clerk mm-hmm. in Springer, New Mexico, shot and killed with a twenty-five caliber pistol. So, so on Sunday, about the same time, uh, they arrest this Green, uh, this Michael Green, for the murder of Gwen Miller. But then, within hours of his arrest, Bronze arrested in New Mexico. So this time, they do catch the guy. Um, he was. And the other thing, too, he said when he was stopped, basically it's kind of like, well, gee, guess who you've got, you know, and kind of what took you so long. But he implicated himself in the murder of uh, Gwen Miller uh, Mm -hmm. over in Ardmore. So now he's starting to tie. Well, guess what? It doesn't take long. Now this is where things really spin up, because once you get that and guess what you've got, you've got the same weapon, you've got the same shells, even if you don't. The other thing, too, is even if you don't are not able to extract the rounds out of the victims and do ballistics analysis that way, you can compare casings and you can compare casings to the weapon that's recovered and you can make a match that way. So um, he is pulled all, I mean, all of this stuff is pulled together. So now we have homicides in Kansas. We have homicides in Oklahoma. We have homicides in Texas and we have homicides in New Mexico. He is truly on a multi-state crime spree. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so then by August 3rd, um, what happens is obviously there's enough information that things are moving fairly fast now. So he's now the, uh, he's now charged with everything with first degree murder all over the place. But guess what though? He's charged with capital murder in New Mexico because they do have, you know, old Sparky or the needle, whatever. Mm-hmm. But he, he pled guilty, but mentally ill. He's trying, he's obviously trying to set up the stage now, like what you were talking about, Stephen. I know you pulled up some stuff. So yeah. um, now's the kind of the time to talk about um, what his dad. By the way, his dad, uh, Leland Braun, was a defense attorney in Garden City who I'd gone up against many times. Um, yeah, I just I'm not going to say anything about him. He just he did what he did. He, he didn't stand out as the best defense attorney. He certainly wasn't the worst, but he made a living doing that. And we'd all all of us had had run-ins with Greg Braun before. Yeah. So it's, and it's, uh, as you read ahead, now this kid had, uh, he was enrolled in, in earning his criminal justice degree. I'm not sure that he earned it all the way, but he was studying criminal justice. Um, but his father says that uh, the use of illegal narcotics is what changed his son. You know what? And that's the sad thing, man. It, it, and we, we know now, based on the investigation, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. his issue was with cocaine. And that, um, and those first two murders, I read somewhere where it was saying that um, he snorted, he bought Coke with the money he, he stole from the first robbery. Then he did the second robbery, snorted cocaine, and it gave him the thrill to want to kill again. Yep. 
so I'm, was, I mean, what the hell? Is that supposed to be an excuse? Well, if he felt like he had to kill again, that wasn't the, uh, that's not uh, the, right. the effects of coke. It's you're just an evil son of a bitch. By the way, um, yeah, he was a graduate with a degree in criminal justice. Uh, between Barbara Kokendorfer and Mary Raines, uh, they had eight children. So he just orphaned, oh, or in a sense, yeah. you know, uh, just took eight children, took the mothers away from eight children. And like you said, yeah, he later told police that he had to kill again. You know, so he also then the next day, he's in Pampa. Um, July 23rd, he kills Geraldine Valdez, shooting her twice in the head uh, during a robbery. He was caught 40 minutes later, um, which they had enough with the gun still in his car. He goes, you guys must be proud. You don't know what kind of famous criminal you caught. So, you know, <laughs> talk about acceptance of responsibility and showing remorse. All he's doing is making a smart-ass statement. Well, here's another statement that he made, too. Braun tells a deputy, he says, it wasn't as good as shooting craps in Vegas, but it was all right. Well, and this, kid, this guy is actually, what, 28? Is that how old he was, I believe? Yeah, 28. Yeah, 28 years old. And, oh, yeah, now I read. He, is, he was a college graduate with a degree in criminal justice. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so, so now, guess what? Now we... Uh, now we take a look at, um, he was sentenced to death now in, uh, uh, for the uh, murder of Gwen Miller in Ardmore, Oklahoma. He got $80 uh, from that and a, uh, or at an $80 flower short robbery. He was also, a customer was shot in the head and robbed of $600, and the bookkeeper was also shot. So anybody who was in the store, he just got shot. So um, Unbelievable. Yeah, each, all five murder victims were found shot in the back of the head with a twenty five caliber gun. Um, and so this, I mean, this is, what's amazing is that this, let me tell you, anytime you cross state lines, it's tough. Anytime you cross multiple state lines, it gets even tougher. So they did, I mean, it's just a lot of great work by a lot of different agencies between Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, and New Mexico to tie everything together. Because then you kind of end up with one of those things that we ended up with Danny Rometta with Mark Conboy is who's, you know, who's got jurisdiction? Well, if you've, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. If you have the suspect, you're going to try him. And so that's what New Mexico did. And so New Mexico's got him. They try him. Uh, Oklahoma also wants to do the same thing. They held, uh, in fact, um, they wanted to try and get clemency for him. What he did was he uh, pled no contest to the robbery and murder charges in Ardmore. And it was called a blind plea, which basically says there's no deal with the prosecutor, um, which... Uh, he got, I guess, what he was looking for because uh, yeah. the judge said, "Okay, plea accepted, sentence you to death." You know uh, what? What did Jimmy and James say? You, you sir, may fuck off. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know. So, you, you, so hey, we sentence you to die. So, but his attorneys tried to file a motion to withdraw. They said, "No, can't do it." Skippy um, denied, and then they tried to file a uh, motion for clemency. So, the Oklahoma Parole Board held a clemency hearing for Greg Braun. And uh, he was represented, you know, by a couple guys. They tried to introduce mental illness, say he had borderline personality disorder, and was raised by his attorneys, uh, was raised by his attorneys as an issue worthy of clemency. Um, <laughs> this is Oklahoma. For nothing. Denied. <laughs> you know, you got a meeting, uh, you got a meeting with those old sparkies since, uh, but they said, you know, so uh, Governor Keating, um, there had never been a vote. Well, there'd never been a vote in flavor, a favor of clemency. So, you know, it was it's not like you're going to get through this. So guess what? So, um, he is sentenced to death 
And now everybody gets to, everybody starts, you know, there's no more trials and stuff. He actually pleads to a lot of this stuff. So, and in fact, in Kansas, he is sentenced, which is good. He is sentenced to consecutive terms. And the, the, what it meant was that even if he got out or for some reason um, was able to avoid uh, being convicted in the other states, he would have to serve 100 years before he would have been eligible for, for parole. So he's basically going to die in prison. So this guy is not getting out. So, um, but here's the other here's the other thing too that comes into it. Now, when it comes down to kill this guy, you know, you're, they're going to execute him. Um, there is some uh, debate between some of the family members about whether or not they want to show up or not. You know, but I think there are some people. Um, one of the victims doesn't want to see the execution of Braun. Um, who killed her husband, Pete Spurrier, Eldon Spurrier, the uh, 63-year-old man uh, down at the one-hour photo mart there in um, Pampa, Texas. She didn't want to see the execution. Uh, she just wants it over with. Uh, the The son of Eldon Spurrier, Bill Spurrier, said, hey, I'll attend. He said, but it does invoke, I'm reading a couple of these things, you know, there's news articles and stuff. Yeah, it has, fav- you know, painful memories. So um, here's what happens. The, all the family members stayed in touch. Uh, a lot of the victim's family said they would be there at the ex- execution. So um, 39 family members of bronze five murder victims. So 39 family members of all the victims mm-hmm. came to witness the execution, but they, they're only able to bring 12 of them inside uh, the death chamber. So the, the remaining 27, they watch from uh, outdoor closed circuit television. And so... Um, for some people, they say, yeah, it brought a sense of justice, but it doesn't. I mean, there's, I like the one son that said that. He said, uh, Bill Spurrier, uh, he says, hey, look, for me, he says, um, brought a sense of justice to Spill. He says, I've been asked several times whether I felt that watching the execution would be revenge for me. My answer is after 11 years, there is no revenge. That is justice. And I think that's what people wanted. They wanted, where is the justice? So uh, he was pronounced dead at 12.17 a.m., in Ardmore, or I'm sorry, in uh, McAllister, Oklahoma, uh, the Oklahoma State Penitentiary. So they brought him back to Oklahoma, um, and that's where he uh, got it. He was executed July 20th, 2000. And think about that, July 20th. So basically, uh, it took 21, no, it took 11 years. This, I'm sorry, yes. this one is only 11 years. But that's still a long time. Still and, and a long time. Think, but that think was Danny the, Rometta too. Danny Rometta was eleven years. Yeah, think of the ordeal the families are going through. You know, they're. I mean, every time something comes out in the newspaper, or you get a call from the victim witness coordinator at the prosecutor's office, you're reliving this all the way. You know, over and over and over again. You know, and and to continue just a little bit further, what you were saying about uh, Bill Bill Spurrier's comment, um, uh, he says, "I feel sorry for Braun's family." But they did get the opportunity to say goodbye, which I never got that opportunity. I had to say goodbye to my dad at the grave. And then he finishes up, said that uh, when my son was born in Sicily, when I was stationed there, so he's out serving his country, my dad traveled all the way to Sicily to hold his grandson. He'll never have the chance to hold my grandson. I mean, this this just rips at your freaking heart. 
the way it tears up families. And this guy's just a little smart ass. That's all he is. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, too. I think Braun was rolling the dice, he thought, because guess what? See, Kansas didn't have the death penalty at that point. So he pled, but he got life in prison. New Mexico, he avoided capital punishment, took a plea deal, and they sentenced him to life. So he's thinking, hey, you know, I'll go to Oklahoma and, uh, you know, hey, I'll, I'll just plead guilty and they'll give me life in prison, too. And that's where uh, this train ride ended for Greg Braun because they said, nope, yeah. we sentenced you to die. So uh, he was put to death by lethal injection. And um, Braun actually asked that none of his family members witnessed the execution. So, you know. Yeah, well, here's the other thing. He got to say goodbye to his family. Yeah. The victims' families didn't get to say goodbye to their, you know, their family members. I, it just, this, just, <clears throat> It's, you know, I don't want to get up on my soapbox, but this stuff just really pisses you off the way that these murderers, convicted murderers, get treated. Ugh. Yeah. So, and what happened was, um, like I said, he was all these suspects, but he pled guilty to mentally ill and everything. So, uh, so, so what happened in September of 91, and this is just basically a couple years after that, he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder uh, after they couldn't reach a consensus on the sentencing. This is in New Mexico. So this is why he did go to trial there. I take that back. He went to trial in New Mexico, but they couldn't reach, they found him guilty, but couldn't reach consensus on the death penalty. So then it's, you're automatically sentenced to life. But he would have, he, he was doing life. Uh, Braun would have to serve a minimum of 36 and a half years behind bars for the murder and robbery before being eligible for parole, sentenced to four life sentences and two sentences of 15 years to life for murder robberies in Kansas. The court ruled that these sentences must be served consecutively, meaning Braun would have to live past 100 to be eligible for parole. So uh, now, two years later after that, he pleads no contest to the robbery and murder charges in Oklahoma. So really, when you think about it, from 93 until 2000, that's only seven years. That is pretty fast from a, for a death penalty case. It is. Yeah. It is. You know, and not to beat a dead horse, but I just, I got to tell you, one of the surviving members, Dusty Miller, he says... He can't understand how somebody could go in. His wife was such a sweet-natured person. I don't understand how he could meet, he being Braun, could meet somebody like Gwen and still make a decision that the world didn't need her anymore. And then it, it, it goes on a little bit farther where he, you know, he says, and, you know, we took these same vows when we got married 100 years ago that he he wanted to be honoring the wedding vows he'd made to her for the final time. I took an oath to love, honor, protect my wife. I wasn't allowed to do that. Greg Braun took that away from me, making sure he pays for what he did. It's the last thing I can do to honor those vows. And then this is what really ticks me off when I read this. <clears throat> Dusty Miller doesn't expect to hear apologies or words of remorse from Braun. This is before his execution. I haven't heard from him in 11 years. He could sit and write letters to others, but not to us. You know, because he's wanting his little fame because he thinks he's some hot shit because he went out and killed a bunch of people. Some say he has expressed remorse, but every time he has, he's had an opportunity to say something publicly, he had used it as a wisecrack. At one point, he told a reporter, tell your editor, thanks for the publicity. That's just like a slap in the face. And this is Mr. Miller talking. At this point, I don't care. I don't need him to tell me he's sorry now. And that was prior to his execution. Well, I bet he's sorry now because he ain't around anymore. That just your heart goes out to the families. I'm sorry. I want to read you something from a guy. This 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 is a reporter actually where I used to live at in Salina. I, I mean, I knew of him. I'd read a couple columns. I don't know the guy, but um, he wrote for the Salina Journal, and he wrote an article 
um, after the execution of Greg Braun. And um, I just want to read the first couple sentences because I think this guy is fucking tone deaf. I, I get it if you're opposed to the capital punishment. But he writes just the first quick couple paragraphs. Now, now that he has dragged others into hell, it is early yet. Greg Francis Braun only died at 17 minutes past midnight Thursday morning at the hands of the state of Oklahoma. But so far, there have been no reports that any of the people he killed 11 years ago, a crime spree that spanned four states and took five lives, have returned to the land of the living. You're a fucking moron. You're there is kidding. evidence, however, that the survivors of some of Braun's victims, cruelly misled by cravenly opportunistic politicians, get to taste did get to taste of the hell known only to those who wish the death of others you're fucking implicating the victims of 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 a of the families of victims killed by this guy and now you're saying that they're craven that they're misled that they only want to know they only want to taste the death that was only known by Greg Braun who killed others and you're you're putting them in the same right. you're creating this moral relativism that somehow they're as bad as Greg Braun is Hey, jackass, how would you feel if that was your wife, if that was your daughter, any of your family members that were the victims? You think you'd say that then? Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, I, yeah I, know, just, I, I read another article that talked about, uh, it, it's, it's not even worth mentioning. It was so outrageous, the, the things that this, I can't even call him a person, that he was saying about uh <laughs> about the victims, about the victims' families, and the states, and the investigators, and the government was all wrong, you know, because they put this guy to death. It's okay to kill those five people. Nothing wrong with that. Jerks. I said, we've got some sick people in this world. Yeah. Well, when you read, like, some of the court stuff, like I said, I mean, I've got 700 pages, over 700 pages of stuff, and then you read the decisions and stuff. If people only knew... um how much effort goes into this stuff? I mean, you would. I think you would be proud if you realized the cost to society of a single homicide. They estimate is can be as high as a million dollars just to just to handle a simple, you know, homicide. There's nothing simple about homicide, but in terms of it's not a really complex case. You know, you handle the cost to society mm -hmm. when you think the police time, the court time, the prosecution time. Uh, most of the time, they don't have a lawyer, so they they get a lawyer represented by the state. You know, indigent defense. So, I mean, it's about a million dollars. So there is a lot that goes into this. And uh, You're not kidding. I'm just reading more and more here, and it's just getting me a little more and more upset. Yeah. Well, so Braun tried to file. He tried to file a petition to have, you know, the sentence changed. And um, so they filed this uh, response back. So what it was is the uh, Braun petitioned against the state of Oklahoma. And uh, he's trying to, you know, in a sense, withdraw his plea and uh, try to say, change things that happened. And they said, here's one of the exchanges between him and the prosecutor's question concerning the sentence received. And it's, it's uh, basically a section that says, more telling is the petitioner's response to the prosecutor's question concerning the sentence received. During cross-examination, the following exchange occurred. Question. Did I hear you just telling Judge Walker that he imposed a life sentence without parole sentence? You wouldn't be up here today asking to withdraw? Answer, no, sir, I'd be back in Santa Fe. That's Greg Braun saying he wanted to go, but they tried to, they tried to get him extradited back to New Mexico. Mm -hmm. So your basic burr is the sentence you got. 
answer yes, well, yes, and question yes or no, the basic, yes, that is the basic. He's just, he's just saying, ah, oh, it wasn't fair. You sentenced me to death. I wanted you to sentence me to life so I could go back to New Mexico. It's like, no, you don't get to withdraw your plea based on the fact you didn't like what the plea was. You were told in a blind plea the judge can do whatever they want. There is no a plea deal on the table. Right. And you pled guilty to it. You admitted the evidence is overwhelming against you, but you openly admitted to investigators as well as the court that you committed those murders. Now, it's not like one of those cases where maybe it's circumstantial evidence that gets someone convicted of a murder and it's still just a little bit questionable. This guy's straight up admitting to the murders. And then our judicial system, we're so careful when it comes to these things, that it takes 11 years to get him to to finally meet his, his final judgment. I tell you, some of this stuff, so in this, in this petition, his lawyers filed, Steve, you're going to laugh at this next one. So here's one of his assertions. Petitioner next argues that there was insufficient evidence to support the court's finding there existed a probability that the defendant would commit criminal acts of violence that would constitute a continuing threat to society. Petitioner acknowledges the murder not only in Oklahoma, but also two in Kansas and one in New Mexico. He argues his four life sentences together with the additional consecutive 30 years in Kansas, which will run consecutive not only to the life as sentence in New Mexico, but together preclude the possibility of his ever being a threat to the citizens of Oklahoma. Dude, you were... <laughs> You were already a threat to the citizens of Oklahoma. You killed one, wounded two. You tried to kill the other two. So I like uh, <laughs> I like the way the courts kind of say – they don't say you're smoking crack. They basically say, in light of our holding, we need not address petitioner's third subproposition that there is insufficient evidence in aggravation to, re- to survive reviewing. This proposition is without merit. They say it on every single finding. This proposition is without merit. This proposition is without merit. Oh, this one is good. We do so again. The fifth proposition is wholly without merit. (laughs) It's like, we're getting pretty fucking tired of this. So, dude, uh, just time for you to go take the needle and let's get this over with. I I did it. I did it. I committed those murders. Oh, wait. No, no, no. Wait a minute. The death penalty? I didn't mean I. I didn't mean I really did it. You know, just and and uh, you know we're getting a little flippant now, and I don't like that because of the 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 victims here. Our hearts go out to you, your families. So sorry this happened to you or to anybody else because of one person's inability to deal with life, who thinks taking illegal narcotics is the answer to everything. Yeah, let's let's legalize that shit. Or an excuse for everything. You know, here's another argument not to legalize cocaine. Washington and Oregon. You know. For you hardworking, honest people out there, I feel so sorry for the environment that you're having to live in out there. Here's a guy. He said he snorted coke, and then it, that felt the need to murder again. Yeah. Well, let's not legalize it, okay? <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. Um, anyway, we're, we're just about right about at the end. But again, yeah, yeah. We're, we weren't trying to be flippant because of this. It just, but I think what we were it's expressing the frustration is that if, you know, so much effort goes into this, but then. For you folks that might think that, hey, this, you know, there's, do we have a perfect system of justice? Absolutely not. Things happen all the time. We don't. But I think we have the best system of justice in the world because if you looked at the amount of time, that effort that went into making sure that he got a fair trial, all of his issues were reviewed by the court, by an appellate court. Uh, He went to a clemency board. You've got all four different states involved. If you thought 
my little Adobe PDF file over here of 760 pages was killing a forest. If you saw the amount of paperwork that goes into the trial, the court transcripts, the lawyers' briefs, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, even dealing with a death penalty case, I mean, if you would put into a room, print out all these things and put them in, you know, the banker's boxes, you know, and stuff, mm-hmm. you could fill a 10 by 10 room at storage shed easily, easily, maybe two of them with all the paperwork that went into this. So, you, you know, are there mistakes made? Yeah, but guess what? Not in this case, because not only did he admit to them, they had evidence that tied him to all of them. And one in one of the most depraved ways you can do it is that you you take them out. You, I mean, can you imagine what is going through the last thoughts that Barbara uh, Kokendorfer and Mary Rains are having right before they're shot in the back of the head? Sheer terror. Sheer terror. For, for something they haven't even done wrong. They're just trying to get along in life, support their families. Well, I will tell victims. you, yeah, so I wanted my, my hats off. I'll be going back in a couple of weeks to Kansas, actually running into some of these folks that worked on this case. And uh, it's just, you look back on it, one of the things I will tell you, it's kind of when I reviewed this, it kind of, um, <laughs> a couple set, besides the case too, one of the people at the sheriff's office at the time was a lieutenant by the name of Kent Newport, who went out his first ride in a state patrol car was with me and Kent, when he joined the patrols, uh, one of my buddies, he's, he, he, uh, died during a, died in the line of duty, died during a chase with, uh, guys that they were chasing for burglaries and stuff. And his name, I went to when they put his name up on the wall. So you go back through this and you say, man, not only do I know the people, here's Kent, you know, here's these folks. So it was one of those things you read back through it and there's no fun and there's no joy in doing this. But one of the reasons we talk about these cases, um, and this is why we don't talk about cases like this on the podcast. I will tell you this, we have a um, kind of a thing. We don't want, we don't want to just make our show about reading cases or other people's cases. Uh, just other cases and like, hey, we're reading this. We're not crime junkies. I get it. They got a large audience. Yeah. Small town murder. They got a large audience. Mm-hmm. We do things a little differently. But the reason we keep this on Patreon is in these cases that we've talked about, except for one, all of these cases Mur- between Murph and I, we have a personal relationship with the case. This is our work we're talking about. Like with you, that case you worked up in Greensboro. Obviously, we've talked about some of the stuff the Met team did, some of my cases. So, uh, and this one, I didn't work on it. Um, I wasn't involved in it. But I lived in the town. I knew the people. This was personal to me because this was my town. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So once again, let's take a deep breath, calm down. Time to get on with the rest of your day. Uh, but what an honor to have you take, give us an hour of your time to listen to us to pontificate about a case and give you our opinions. And once again, please give us your feedback. We truly are interested in what you think about what we're putting on here. And for you folks who are at the uh, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne level, we have a special surprise for you this month in terms of the movies we're going to do. There is a tie-in to things that are going on and a tie-in to a guest we just finished interviewing um, uh, this last week. By the time you hear this, you know, it'll be in uh, June of 2000 or 2022. Mm -hmm. But we've got a real mob guy. I mean a real mob guy. And so the movies we're going to talk about for um, our monthly Narcometer review, I think pretty much, I think, Steve, when we looked at the list, they all, they're all they all mob-related, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And uh, and the kindly, timely, kind of, kind of timely, <laughs> kindly, timely, based on the actor that, that uh, is involved in these movies. So say no more, say no more. If you want to know, If you're not a member of the Warden of the Throne or Guardian of the Realm level, now would be the time to join. But in the meantime, 
we want to thank you guys. Like I said, we so appreciate the fact that you support us, that you donate to us, and that you want to hear these cases. So we thank you, and we thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, and as you've seen, the most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. (laughs) 